Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, transportation, local amenities, cultural attractions, unique qualities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. See new things. Try new things. Go back centuries while living in the moment. Forge new paths while discovering old ones. Pedal, paddle, and paint while trekking, tasting, and tailoring experiences that transform you into a better version of yourself. Immerse yourself in the world by activating your mind, your heart, and your body on a river cruise exclusively from Avalon Waterways. Save with limited time offers at AvalonWaterways.com. Avalon is cruising. Elevated. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Donald Trump vows to end birthright citizenship. We have such an interesting show today. Vermont Representative Becca Belint talks to us about how the freshman class of Congress relates to the rest of the body. Then we'll talk to Third Way's Matt Bennett about the danger that is no labels and how they're working to get Trump elected under the guise of a third party candidate. But first, we have The Washington Post's The Plum Lines, Greg Sargent. Welcome back to Fast Politics, fan favorite. Greg Sargent. Thanks for having me on. Always fun. I want to talk to you first about this piece you wrote that was published this morning that I immediately read. What is happening in Florida? And it reminds me of like Brownback in Kansas. Yeah, that's a really interesting comparison. It hadn't hadn't occurred to me. But what we wrote about was in Hernando County, which is in the western part of Florida, and DeSantis won by 40 points and Trump won by 30 points. There was like a ferocious amount of pushback from liberal parents and teachers and also kids against kind of the right wing culture warring that's going on in that county, which is really very, very virulent and nasty. That's the place where the, the teacher got punished for showing her class a Disney film with a gay character. And people were very upset about that and all the other right-wing culture war or craziness that's going on. And so this thing went on for like seven hours or something, maybe eight hours. And 
it was really quite a show of force for the anti anti woke side, if that's the right way to put it. I guess that's not quite the right right way. Just the pro woke. The pro woke side. That's a much better way to put it. I mean, what I think is interesting here is that you have a lot of students being like, I just want to learn. Yes. Can you talk about that? Because I feel like there's a really good point here. Yeah. And and that seems to be having paid attention to a bunch of these kinds of outbreaks of liberal resistance in red states all over the place, which is a really big story, by the way. I want to say this. This is a big story, people. The press constantly hangs over every word of what the, the right wing says on this stuff and treats Moms for Liberty as like a set of really authentic voices when they're just right, really far they're right activists um, and minority uh, position. They represent a minority position in their communities a lot of the talk. Um, but so, you know, there's a liberal counter mobilization happening all over the place. And that's a big story. But the press isn't right. really covering it. It's starting to change now. But anyway, and part of it is what you just said, which is that the students are just absolutely sick of being told that they're being indoctrinated by liberals. Right. Yeah. I mean, they just want to do school. So do you think that it comes back to this idea that the smartest lie Republicans ever told the mainstream media was that they were too liberal and so they are constantly overcompensating? You could draw a parallel back to 2009 and 2010 when the when the Tea Party was really kind of getting going. The same thing happened then. They were treated like this really authentic on the ground movement and and it felt a lot like the press was terrified of missing what's really going on out there in, in right-wing America. You saw that same thing happen with the Trump voters and diners, right? Right. There's sort of this perennial terror among among the media that they're missing the real authentic America that's out there. And often it's right-wing America that they're talking about when they say that. And center-left America, which is pretty substantial judging by the last, you know, eight presidential elections. <laughs> right. <laughs> or I should say the popular vote in the last uh, eight pre- presidential elections is sort of rarely accorded that same kind of respect and deference and kind of fawning coverage. And it's a strange disconnect. And and maybe you're right that that's the cause of it, that the, the smartest lie that the right ever told was that reporters are, are overly liberal. And so that could be the cause of it, part of it. But I think there's also like a genuine feeling among a lot of reporters that they, they're kind of culturally out of step with some sort of real authentic America that's out there somewhere that they're missing. And I would like to add that the entire career of Selena Zito was, you know, made by her pretending to go to diners. That is a good point. And, you know, there's a, sort of another effect that you can kind of discern here, which is that some someone like that is fairly skillfully playing on the press's kind of insecurities about missing that quote unquote real America out there. And so whenever someone like that publishes these stories that supposedly tap into this authentic sentiment out there, a lot of mainstream reporters feel obliged to sort of bow down and kind of suck up to that kind of coverage and say, this person really seems to be onto something. And it's a very frustrating dynamic. Another thing that I really want to talk to you about is the debt ceiling compromise has passed the House yet another time when 
Biden did not have a ton of good options, really, at all. There's stuff in there for everyone to dislike. Don't get me wrong. And the thing that keeps me up at night is some of the permitting reform stuff, because that is not clear. And it looks like it opens the door to some environmental stuff that's not good. But I mean, still a pretty good deal, considering that a large number of the Republican Party wants to crash the economy. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, I was surprised by it. A lot of other people in sort of our space were, were surprised by it. I still think, though, that it was the right take to say beforehand, particularly, you know, a month ago or so, that Biden should be prepared with a backup option, a unilateral option to exercise as a last resort. if Which would have been the discharge petition, I think. Or the 14th Amendment route where the Treasury Secretary keeps paying the bills because it's requires it. The question of whether like this debt crisis pulls you into recession is as much about the perception as it is about the reality. Well, that's, I think, another reason to sort of look at what happened here and not celebrate. Right. There's sort of a weird kind of smug tone among certain pundit types and economists who kind of predicted that something like this would happen. They seem very happy about what happened. But what I don't quite get is, can't we imagine something better? Can't we imagine not negotiating an enormous spending package under threat of default? It's still not okay that it unspooled that way. Well, I mean, Ed Luce had a really good column in the FT about how, like, it didn't end up being a catastrophe, but it should have. I mean, if we're going to Monday morning quarterback, and I don't want to because I feel like, you know, we're seeing McCarthy take a victory lap and we're seeing pundits talk about how maybe he's not as stupid as we all know he is, when in fact... This is, if anything, you know, it would theoretically be a Biden victory. But I do think it's important to mention that they should have done this in 2022 when they could. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a legitimate argument over whether it was possible. Uh, Manchin and uh, Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema appeared opposed to doing anything about the debt limit. But it's it's really clear that there wasn't a very serious effort to do it. And I, and I think it really is unclear whether Democratic leaders even want it. To. Right. I mean, there's that reporting which says that some Democrats were saying it might actually make Democrats look good. Yes, I think that's right. And, and that was just a baffling kind of reading of it. And I will say that the, that reading doesn't look quite as bad now as it did a month ago. Right. Right. But still, I think we got to come back to this point. Like there's no reason to be doing this under this kind of threat of duress. It's just it's crazy. It's it's no one should ever say that's OK. No, I agree. And I also think that sort of more central to this is that in the end, McCarthy did not have the votes. Yeah, I mean, that's true. And and I think we always knew that it would require a, a large block of House Democrats to pass. And, you know, I think there's maybe some thought on the left that more could have been gotten because of that fact. I don't I don't know if that's right or not, but I suppose it's worth thinking about. Um, I mean, there was a, a snap expansion. That is sort of shocking to me. Yeah. But it comes back to this idea that Republicans don't really like you can't. I mean, and I think this is a problem McCarthy stumbled himself into, though may not understand because I don't think he ha- understands things this complicated. But the Republicans don't have a platform anymore. Right. I mean, it, it was actually kind of reasonable to fear that maybe they'd want to crash the economy. I mean, Donald Trump was saying that that's what should happen. And 
I'm pretty sure he's like the leading candidate for the Republican presidential <laughs> nomination. <laughs> yeah. If anything, right, they're more interested in crashing the economy than they are in shrinking. The, I mean, like for so many years, you could say Paul Ryan wants to shrink the economy. You could you could say, well, they want want to shrink the government not the economy, but they will shrink the economy by shrinking the government, you know, and but the, but all of a sudden, that's not what Trump wants at all. He doesn't want to shrink the government. If anything, you know, he wants more of an Erdogan, like give people money to vote for me situation. Right. Although, I, you know, I, th- I think one of the things that sort of the characters like Steve Bannon and, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a bit of a puzzle in all this. I've always thought of her as kind of a little bit in the Bannon kind of nihilist slash far right populist slash wants to bring everything crashing down to rebuild a, a new order, a new nationalist order or whatever. And she's kind of been much more allied with McCarthy than I think a lot of people expected, right? But it did seem like there was sort of a MAGA position emerging, which was to be kind of pro-default because it kind of goes back to the Flight 93 election argument, right? Like if we're in a cultural emergency, as, as some of these, you know, right wing types seem to think or pretend to think, then and if the Biden presidency is an emergency, the borders being overrun, wokeness is destroying our institutions from within and so forth and so, so on, stupid. then you want default to kind of bring it all crashing down and, and build up a new order. Right. It's the Jill Stein presidency argument. It's interesting when we talk about this interest. One of the things I'm struck by, which McCarthy maybe did play well, and again, I never want to give him credit for anything because I think he's an abject moron, but I do think it is interesting. He took that very far right flank and he brought them in and he became... You know, you saw Jim Jordan and Marjorie Taylor Greene become his biggest sort of boosters. And you have to wonder if it's really true that these people actually don't believe in anything. They just want friends. Yeah. I mean, Kevin McCarthy seems like that. That seems like a good reading of Kevin McCarthy, right? He really, I mean, it's pretty shrewd the way he seems to have defanged the, the possibility of a, of a challenge to his leadership. I still don't feel like I understand that dynamic very well. Do you? I mean. Right. I thought he was nice to the people who always felt that they were kind of outsiders and that nobody was nice to them. And that's Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jim Jordan. And because these people don't ultimately really believe in anything. I mean, you could see like Chip Roy, but even Thomas Massey. I mean, Thomas Massey wants to, you know, he's a real full libertarian, wants to destroy the federal government. So he votes yes. Yeah. I'm glad he voted yes, because I don't want the federal government to be destroyed. But, you know, if you do believe in things, then you should theoretically believe in them. I'm just, this is sort of the Yogi Berra school of politics. So that was my question is like, what is happening here? I do also think, and again, this was something that we saw earlier on when when McCarthy couldn't win all those votes, the 15 votes, is that there's not anyone who really wants this job. Yeah. I mean, if you think back to Boehner, uh, John Boehner and Paul Ryan, those guys were just so visibly unhappy in their role. I don't know. You <laughs> right. Know, I don't know if your listeners will remember this, but there was a moment that I always think back to when John Boehner, and he he was probably, you know, maybe his mental state was altered by some sort of liquid substance or something. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) But he he was really 
very visibly pissed off at the right for not getting on board with immigration reform. That was when Republicans, there was a sizable block of Republicans who wanted to do immigration reform, believe it or not, back then. Yeah, hard to imagine. And he did this whole routine right in front of reporters where he just mocked the shit out of these right wingers in all kinds of crazy, funny ways. And, you know, his his visible you know, dislike of the job was so clear. Yeah. I mean, I think we can all agree this is not a good job. Yeah. Scalise doesn't want it. And you even look at like what's happened in the leadership. Like it doesn't seem that people are just delighted with the experience of being in the GOP leadership. Yeah. I mean, can we float this though? Does Kevin McCarthy kind of like it? I think he is his lifelong dream. That's all he's ever wanted. I mean, you know, the man had to like, you know, lapdog to Trump, my Kevin. Yeah. Remember my Kevin? Yes. And also, I think if you think back to just before that, right, or well, not just before that, but right after January 6th, Trump had practically literally sent his supporters into Kevin McCarthy's office to do some pretty serious damage. And Kevin McCarthy privately started saying to people that he he should resign. And then he made that pilgrimage to Mar-a-Lago, which was one of the most abject things, to use your word, that yeah. I think we've ever seen in, in politics, uh, at least in contemporary politics. And so at that point, it was clear that he had made his deal to get speakership yeah. by essentially insulating Trump from accountability at all costs, which he did for years. Yeah. The deal with the devil that Kevin McCarthy made was that he decided that he would put his quest for the speakership over American democracy. Yeah, that's that's very clear. I mean, he did everything he could to frustrate a real accounting into January 6th. Let's recall this, right? The deal that he made, with, I guess we should call it a, a sort of a long-term kind of deal with the devil type situation with Marjorie Taylor Greene. But Remember, she was on the hook for openly espousing something like real political violence. She had engaged in some pretty naked anti-Muslim bigotry, and he protected her through all that stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, that is absolutely true. Some progressives voted against it, but do you think ultimately everyone's like largely happy and relieved? Well, I think there's a genuine sort of unhappiness among progressives. To go back to what we talked about earlier... I think everybody's very pissed about the fundamental, the structural aspects of right. the situation, right? That the very fact that this had to occur under duress is itself infuriating. And and I think progressives are right to continue to raise hell about that. It's not okay. I mean, there's a legitimate argument to be had about whether there was an actual ransom paid for the hostage, right? But there's no doubt that a hostage was taken and, and there was visible damage to the country. Like lots and lots of people were frightened about their losing their social security and so forth. And there was talk of a debt downgrade and that actually happened during the last one, right? In 2011. In 2011. And so what we never factor in when we talk about this deal that was reached is the long-term downside of legitimizing extortion as a kind of conventional tool of politics. Right. And it can't be okay. And, and that's one of the things that progressives are rightly pissed off about. And, and I think they should continue to raise holy hell about that. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. 
new things. Try new things. Go back centuries while living in the moment. Forge new paths while discovering old ones. Pedal, paddle, and paint while trekking, tasting, and tailoring experiences that transform you into a better version of yourself. Immerse yourself in the world by activating your mind, your heart, and your body on a river cruise exclusively from Avalon Waterways. Save with limited time offers at avalonwaterways.com. Avalon is cruising elevated. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Rep Becca Ballant represents Vermont's first district. Welcome to Fast Politics, Congresswoman Ballant. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. We will now have had all of the federal legislators from Vermont. Fantastic. Yes, we'll have the trifecta. So you are the one Congresswoman from Vermont. That's right. The lone one. The lone Congresswoman. Let's first talk about this incredible legislation you guys passed yesterday. Tell me what was happening, what was going through your head, and also how you voted and how it went down. Okay. First of all, 
to understand what happened on the floor yesterday, you have to go back to our first week on the job when there were 15 votes for speaker, right? And so when you think about how it was that McCarthy was able to become speaker to begin with, that he cut deals with the most extreme elements of his conference. That is literally how he became speaker. And so none of us should be surprised that we even had this emergency, right? This was a, this was a manufactured crisis. They raised the debt ceiling three times under Trump, right? This manufactured. But the moment when I thought, oh my gosh, they really are not ready for prime time. They really don't know what they're doing was when it was a procedural vote just to bring it to the floor, right? You need a rule suspension. And McCarthy didn't have the votes to do it. So we're all standing there watching the board thinking, really? Like, seriously? You don't even have the votes for the procedural vote? And so in the end, I believe it was 29 Democrats needed to switch their vote to give them, to give McCarthy the ability to bring it to the floor. That does not bode well for the the next vote coming, right? Because that's just the, the procedural hurdle. So it's more of the same. Right. It's more of this this extremist element of his conference uh, in the driver's seat. And so I really my feelings about the deal went through all different um, stages. Yeah. Almost like stages of grief. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. And so when we got the top lines on Sunday night from the White House, it was before we even saw the text of the bill. Right. I was feeling generally like, okay, like crisis averted. It seems like. The negotiators in in the White House did did a good job with the bad hand they'd been dealt. And then on Monday, I was in meetings, as many of my colleagues were, for hours, hours and hours on Monday, trying to dive into the details. And then as we were diving into the details, I felt like, oh, like the permitting reform, the environmental stuff freaked you out, right? Oh, totally, completely. And and the fact that they're always beating up on poor people. Right. Right. I mean, again, this trope again. But they are so stupid that they did actually increase SNAP. I know. It's pretty genius. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was masterful on the on the part of the president and his negotiators, because in the end, we got more people covered. But not yeah. before, again, they dragged poor people and poor working families through the mud again, right, right for right, essentially right. very little in supports. And we're not going to balance the budget, eliminating people's you know, food support. I'm not sure anyone's even interested in balancing the budget at this point. Exactly. Well, that's it. You said the quiet part out loud, right? Which is, no, they're not. They're not. Because if you had a seriousness of purpose, you would be looking at what added to this deficit under the Trump years, right? Where these devastating tax cuts that weren't paid for, adding over a trillion dollars, right? So so I ran through all kinds of emotions, but when seeing the dysfunction and realizing they couldn't even get a procedural vote passed, it was clear to me that there was real danger that we could default, and I'm not going to be part of that. That is, you know, what I was saying to a reporter earlier, the bill is distasteful, a default is catastrophic. And so, you know, you you make the best of the, the cards you're dealt, and you fight like hell on the appropriations bill and on the farm bill and all that stuff that is going to come up. But it should be surprising to no one that this is how the conference is leading, given how McCarthy handed over the steering wheel to folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Paul Gosar, like the extremists of the conference. But what I was a little bit interested in, and again, 
You never want to hand it to McCarthy. I am in no way handing it to McCarthy. He made overtures to those guys like Jim Jordan, and then they supported him. Yes. Which is proof that if you're just nice to them, they don't actually have any values. <laughs> That's it. They don't have any values. And also, who's their cash cow? Right. Some of this comes right down to, to, to money in their districts, right? So unfortunately, that is the always the underbelly, which is where you're getting your, your money from. But yes, Marjorie Taylor Greene has been right by his side. I think he was even quoted as saying is, I will never abandon that woman, which like, is just like... I can have her, man. I mean, right, exactly. One like, of us. Let yeah. me wash the bile out of my mouth, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, what I'm struck by is the way in which she was like, it's a shit sandwich. And then she's like, but I'm going to vote for it. Exactly. So that was incredible. Yeah. So I, I know Director Young really was sort of the hero of the story, right? Absolutely. And when she she walked into caucus yesterday morning, we all gave her a standing ovation. That's how well respected she is, even though there were parts of the deal that we didn't like, even though we are so angry that we're even in this situation. She is absolutely should be hailed as, as a hero because she's incredibly smart. She is incredibly experienced and she knows how to work with people. Oh, shocking. You need people <laughs> in negotiations who know how to work with people. And yeah, I actually, it's on my list of, of notes to write this week. There's nothing like a handwritten note and drop her a line and just tell her like what a great job that, that she did. Not just for, you know, this isn't about Democrats versus Republicans. This is about, she did work on behalf of the American people to make sure we didn't default. And that's, that's huge, huge. She is also the first African-American woman to ever have that job. Exactly. Yeah. Again, like we love to celebrate first. I was a first, right? First woman right. to represent Vermont, first queer person, all these things. We do need to celebrate first. And also we have to, you know, at the same time, shake our heads and say, really, it took this long, right? <laughs> it took this long for an African-American woman to be in those negotiations, it is shocking. Yeah. I'm so pleased that she is in the position that she's in. I wanted just one last second on the director of office, <laughs> office yes. management and budget, right? Is that what it's yes, called? Or, that's right. Yeah. Yes. She also, supposedly McCarthy said that she was so respected, even he could not say something bad about her to the sort of that was the effect of what I read. Exactly. And, and McHenry, one of the negotiators, for McCarthy said a similar thing, that it was this sense of almost an exhaling moment for everyone that, oh, like we're getting serious about these negotiations. This isn't for show. Shalanda's in the room. This yes. must mean that we're we're actually going to negotiate an actual deal. And that just speaks volumes for the work that she did for years. I believe she was a staffer on the Appropriations Committee. Yeah. So she knows she knows how to build budgets. She knows how to, again, as I said, bring people together. It is, it is a lost art. And yeah. I, I want to be part of those, you know, part of that coalition, bringing back the lost art of actually working well with people. And yeah, it is, it's critically important. 
you are also in a very insane freshman class. So, well, <laughs> we, I feel like we just had like the lovely like government sometimes works. I mean, let's be honest here. It seems like Democrats fell asleep at the wheel a little bit with the House losing the House because, you know, there are 18 seats in this House that are occupied by Republicans in Biden districts. Yeah, we need to do a better job in 2024. Absolutely. We need to not take any seat for granted, right? We, we need to get back at least five votes, you know, guaranteed votes to get to flip those seats, get back those seats that we lost in New York and California that we never should have lost. Absolutely. And so, yeah, we have, we, of course, we have some blame here as well as this whole debacle over the, the debt ceiling. We could have, you know, done away with it when we were in charge and we didn't. That's on us, yeah. right? So yeah. that's work that we have to do going forward. And so what is inspiring to me, even in my frustration about being in the minority and, and looking at the dysfunction of the Republican conference, the thing that gives me inspiration is the number of really inspiring Democratic freshmen who have come in with me. I love my class. Tell me about the inspiring Democratic freshmen, because I've seen some not so inspiring George Santoses. <laughs> that is right. All right. So let's talk about them. There's so many of them and many of them serve with me on oversight. So right. you've got Jasmine Crockett. You've got Summer Lee, Greg Kassar, Maxwell Frost. We just had Summer Lee on. Yes. And Maxwell Frost. I know. I listen. And Robert Garcia, and then Adalia Ramirez, and Morgan McGarvey from from Louisville. I love my class. I feel a kinship with them, even if we don't agree on all you know political policies. Like we have a tight group of you know it goes from the Blue Dogs to the Progressives within our class, and we we have a signal chat. We all are talking with each other. We lift each other's work up to the group. It was one of my biggest fears in leaving the Vermont legislature. So I was the, the president of the Senate. We passed some really progressive legislation in Vermont, including codifying reproductive rights in our constitution. Like we did some really great stuff. And my biggest fear was I'm leaving a, a very functioning body to come here to Congress. And will I have allies? Will I feel a kinship? Will I have a group that will continue to really nourish me because it's a hard work, right? You, you need to get inspiration from the people around you because there's so much despair. And I do get that from them. And even when we're in oversight and once again, they're beating up on queer people or trans kids or poor people, right? I know that Maxwell Frost is to my right and Summer Lee is to my left. And together, we're going to be refuting the misinformation and disinformation and we all make each other laugh. Like, yeah, yeah, you can't lose your sense of humor. And so I I just feel very fortunate to be coming in at this time. And it's no accident, right? Pretty much every Democratic freshman ran because of what happened on January 6th. So it was an absolute pivotal, crystallizing moment. Democracy is fundamentally at risk. And so we have that binding us together. It's really powerful. You're gay. I am. <laughs> Very gay. <laughs> I have a gay kid. It seems like I've never, ever, I mean, you know, I had a lot of members of my family were gay. Most of them have died, but that's why I say were. Yeah. I mean, Republicans are just attacking gay people in a way that yeah. I did not think would ever happen. 
now. Yeah, we're seeing the 1970s all over again, as we're seeing. It's come back again. And, and we see this when you make advances, the backlash comes and we're, we're in the backlash. And what is the most disheartening for me is that they are punching down. They're, they're picking on kids constantly, right? And that, that's the piece for me. I'm an adult. I have dealt with the homophobia my whole life. It's another issue entirely when you are going after queer and trans kids and their families. I mean, it, these are some of these kids are, you know, 10, 11 years old. I mean, I certainly I knew when I was 11 that I was gay. I didn't come out to my friends or family till much later. But a couple weeks ago, we had an extraordinary meeting with parents of trans kids. They came to the Capitol to talk to us about what their experiences are. And some were from, quote unquote, blue, blue states, some from red states. And they all had the same thing to say, which is, you have no idea how painful it is for our children, for them to watch their own government attack them, right? Yeah. There is the toll it's taking in terms of the care they're not being able to get, whether they're, you know, they're not able to get their gender affirming care. But then there's also the psychological and emotional toll. That your government hates you. That your government hates you and that there are people who have absolutely no qualms about showing that hatred because they believe that the base on the right will respond. And it is very disheartening, but we we have been here before. Like I I know this, I know this play that that's what they always go to when they don't have any substantive policy discussions, when they don't want to actually talk about the unfair tax code or the fact that we're burning the planet or, you know, any of those things. Let's beat up on people who are vulnerable because we don't think there are enough people to speak for them. And that's the message that that I want to let people know. And actually, I listened to your great interview with Megan Hunt. We, we got to know each other through the Victory Fund, which is an organization that supports queer and trans candidates. And, you know, she is a hopeful person. I am a hopeful person. One of the takeaways that I had in listening to that interview you did was that we need allies. We need people for whom this doesn't impact their lives day in and day out to stand up for us because we are tired and we're attacked. I feel like I have figured out a way not to let the homophobia and hatred get to me. Like I don't read the comments, right? Right, I don't like, like, you know, all those things. Don't read the comments. And also I've just been deciding I'm in a blue district. I'm going to be unapologetically myself and be joyful about it. And so you know, we have these little stickers and T-shirts that we made that just say scrappy little dyke on them because that's who I am. Like, I'm scrappy. I'm little. I'm a dyke. And you know what? I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to fight for everyone. That's my message. I'm fighting for everyone. And we need allies that will stand with us. I think you can bring people to you when you are joyful. So I try to go through my my days in that way. I have one last question for you. What are you doing in Vermont that is that the rest of the country should be doing legislatively? Yeah, well, certainly around reproductive rights. We absolutely should be doing that. We have been leading on our child care initiatives. And I was just watching the local news this morning, worrying about what the governor was vetoing. <laughs> you have a Republican governor. We do, do exactly. He he is a sort of an old style New England Republican, which is, of course, like he's one of like what three left yeah. <laughs> in, in New England. <laughs> That's right. And so I was watching this morning. He may be um, setting us back on some of those initiatives, but I think one of the things that we've tried to do in Vermont is really look at. Who is suffering the most 
under this income inequality gap that has grown into a huge chasm in the last few decades? And how do we make sure that we are supporting those families and those individuals who are most vulnerable? And that's really what has been driving our our budget decisions and our policy decisions. And I think rural America desperately needs this right now. And that's one of the reasons why I'm from a rural state, right? I mean, our largest city is Burlington, which is really not that big. And I you know, and I'm not from there. I'm from the southern part of the state that is that is rural. The rest of the state is rural. And I really want to figure out a way to make these ideas not about blue state, red state, and more about this is what rural America needs right now because we're dying. And rural America really has problems that the rest of America doesn't. Yes, they don't have access to medical care or uh, or dentists or psychologists or, you know, depending on where you are, you don't have the infrastructure that is supporting you and your family. And you don't have mass transit and you don't have the ability to shop locally, all of those things. And I think there is a place for me right now even as a, even as a motorcycle riding gay woman from, you know, from Vermont, to make the case that we do not need to be demonizing each other and dehumanizing each other on these extreme issues that the Republicans are bringing up, because it's, it's just killing people who are living on the margins. Thank you so much. This was great. Hi, it's Molly, and I am wildly excited that for the first time, Fast Politics, the show you're listening to right now is going to have merch for sale. Over at shop.fastpoliticspod.com, you can now buy shirts, hats, hoodies, and tote bags with our incredible designs. We've heard your cries to spread the word about our podcast and get a tote bag with my adorable Leo, the rescue puppy on it. And now you can grab this merchandise only at shop.fastpoliticspod.com. Thanks for your support. Matt Bennett is the vice president of Third Way. Welcome to Fast Politics, Matt. Thanks so much. Explain to us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. So I am a co-founder and EVP at a think tank and advocacy group called Third Way in Washington. And we're basically moderate Democrats. We work with the center left. I think Joe Biden as our ideology. And we do a whole range of things. Um, and I spend a lot of my time thinking about politics and especially at the moment, presidential politics. Talk to me about what you're worried about. The thing that is really worrying us at the moment is an effort on the part of a group called No Labels to field a third party candidate in 2024. This kind of flew under the radar for a while until David Brooks wrote about it back in September. And it became clear that they have a lot of money and that they were intending to try to get on the ballot in every state. And when we looked at this, it became very evident, not only that they could never possibly win the election, but if they go forward with this, they could serve as a spoiler and help reelect Trump. So that really worried us. Talk to us about where the no labels money comes from. Well, it's important to emphasize that we don't know exactly because they're organized as a 501c4, which means they can keep their donors secret. And they do. There has been some reporting on a few people who give to them. They tend to be 
center-right or Republican finance types. They're not Democrats, I think is important to hit a point. They are not. And it used to be that they had a more bipartisan group of donors. But a while ago, they got involved in a Senate race in Colorado and they endorsed Cory Gardner, the Republican, against Mark Udall, who was a moderate Democrat. And a lot of their Democratic donors kind of fled after that. So it's it's Republican. So let's talk about what what they're doing now to try to undermine this election. Well, what they say they're doing is offering voters a choice because nobody wants a rematch of Biden Trump. But that's bullshit. Right. That's what they claim. Uh, what they actually are doing is they have people on the ground in every state or, or most states right now seeking ballot access. And there's a quirk in the law that in 35 states, they can do that, even though they're a C4, their donors are secret, they raise unlimited amounts of money. They're not a political party operating under all these other rules that, that would apply if they were. And they have already collected at least $40 million. They claim they're on their way to $70 million. That's a lot of money for a third party effort. Yeah. And that's just to get on the ballot. They are playing footsie with people like Joe Manchin and possibly Kristen Cinema, Larry Hogan, the former governor of Maryland, they want to field a bipartisan ticket. And they are telling their donors and supporters that they can do this in a way where they can actually win. But that's nonsense. What they will actually do is spoil. But they really only want to get on the ballot in states where they could throw the election to Trump, too. It's hard to know. I mean, they actually have qualified for the ballot in a few red states. So I'm not sure that's right. Where have they qualified so far? Right. So the first place was Arizona. Right. Which is a place where they really could throw the election. to. They absolutely could. I mean, election was decided by 0.2% last time. They are on in Florida, and they're, which has become, unfortunately, a red state, as Steve Shale writes about today in the bulwark. But but then they're, they're trying to qualify basically everywhere. They have now said they want to be on in 50 states. And they've put out this electoral map where they you know, claim they're going to win 25 or 26 states. It's insane to think that they could win anything, much less 26 states. But they are they're purporting that this is a national effort. And it, it appears they have the money to do that. That's really scary. It really is. I mean, just to put this in perspective about how damaging this could be. In 2016, Jill Stein and Gary Johnson were two third-party candidates on the ballot. They did not have much money. They did not have any name ID almost anywhere. But they were right. an alternative for a lot of voters who didn't like either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. And a lot of voters, uh, at least a lot in the context of a very close race, chose that option. They got five, six, seven percent in a lot of swing states. Just to give you a sense of how devastating this was, in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, which is, we all remember, those were the three states that killed Clinton. If she'd won those, she'd have been president. Uh, she lost them very narrowly. In all three of those states, uh, Trump won in 2016 and he lost them in 2020. Nevertheless, his share of the vote in all three went up from 16 to 20. And the reason is some of the third party voters from 16 went to Trump, but more went to Biden. So Biden, Biden's share relative to Hillary's went up by more. It's crystal clear evidence that a third party candidate can be a spoiler. It certainly was in 2016. It obviously was with Ralph Nader in, in 2000. And uh, a very well financed third party candidate 
could be incredibly dangerous and damaging. Yes. What can we do to prevent this from happening? Well, unfortunately, the options are somewhat limited. I mean, it's a free country. They can do this if they want to. They have enough money to have a sophisticated operation to gather signatures and get on the ballot in the states where they're able to before they have a candidate. Incidentally, they claim they're going to hold a nominating convention in April of next year in Dallas. They will choose their candidate then, and, and then that candidate will be in charge. So between now and April, uh, what we are focused on is trying to convince both their donors and their potential candidates, that this is a terrible and destructive idea that will lead to the re-election of Trump. And we're having a degree of success with that. And I think listeners can help by getting the word out that the no labels effort is simply going to re-elect Trump, whether they intend that or not. And they have run into some skepticism from some of their donors. It has uh, made some of the people that are potential candidates for them, like Manchin, Sinema, and Hogan, somewhat defensive. And I think that drumbeat needs to get a lot louder. So let me ask you where Harlan Crow figures into this. Yeah. So we all remember Harlan Crow from the incredible reporting done about Clarence Thomas and the trips on his yacht and his garden of evil and all of that. Yeah. It, it turns out that he is one of, or perhaps the top donor to no labels. Again, hard to know because it's all secret. Apparently, according to some reporting, he is a major donor of theirs. And they've got other people. There's a guy named Nelson Peltz, who was close to Trump at one time. He's a big donor. Andrew Tisch, whose brother is a big Democratic donor. Andrew is a Republican. So to your point earlier, these are Republican donors. There are a lot more of them. There was a story recently in the Wall Street Journal about how bunch of Wall Street guys are really into this. I mean, they love the idea of a nonpartisan or bipartisan ticket. It's all baloney, but it is selling well in the donor class. Right. With Republican donors. Largely Republican donors. Right. I mean, clearly, if you are a Biden donor, this will not appeal to you. If you're a core Trump supporter, there's probably more direct ways of helping Trump than this. That would be kind of a double bank shot. For the most part, these donors, I think, believe in good faith that this is actually a thing that could work, that, that these guys could actually win the election, despite the fact that no one has ever come close to doing that. The person who got the closest was Teddy Roosevelt. He is carved into Mount Rushmore. He couldn't <laughs> do it. He left office as one of the most popular presidents in American history. Four years later, tried to run as a third party candidate and got smoked. But by the way, was a spoiler. And you know, at the time, the Republicans were the good guys and he served as a spoiler and the Democrat won. So yeah. the, the idea they could win is absurd. No one has won a single electoral vote as a third party candidate since 1968 when George Wallace did it by appealing to racists. So, right, right, right. you know, not going to happen. But somehow people, for the most part on Wall Street, have convinced themselves that this time is different, which is a thing you probably shouldn't convince yourself of on Wall Street because we know how that goes. You know, they're kind of credulously buying it. Yeah, I'm sure you saw that yesterday, what's his name, hedge fund manager, was saying that Jamie Dimon should run for president. Yeah, Bill uh, Ackman. Bill Ackman, yeah. I mean, just like we're getting high on our own supply over here, team. Unbelievably so. I mean, Jamie Dimon seems like he's very good at his job. But what happened in, in on Wall Street is when you become that rich, you think you can do any job. Right. You know, the idea that this guy, that Jamie Dimon would be a good candidate for president is ridiculous. 
particularly in the context of a re-election of an incredibly successful, very moderate and bipartisan Democratic president. I mean, what we saw last night in the House was this incredibly overwhelming victory for Joe Biden. I do not know what the no label supporters want him to do. I mean, he's doing pretty much precisely what it seems that they would like. Yeah, this is really about handing the election to Trump. We've declined to question their motives. I don't know what is actually driving the people at No Labels uh, or their donors, but you're exactly right in, in effect, which is if they do this, they will elect Trump, whether they intend it or not. So basically what's important now is that people write to and remind Kirsten Cinema crew, right? Yeah. I mean, Mansion Cinema, Larry Hogan, but also anyone else who is thinking about this and to their own members of Congress that they should make clear that this is a terrible idea. Just to give you an example, the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is this group of Democrats and Republicans that No Labels helps form, say what you will about them. They're kind of centrist, bipartisan types, and some things they've done have been great. And you know, you could quibble with others, but there are a bunch of Democrats in the Problem Solvers Caucus, and none of them can possibly support this because you can't be a Democratic elected official and think Joe Biden shouldn't be president. Many of them have been clear about that, including their chair, Josh Gottheimer, said he doesn't support this. Abigail Spamberger put out a flaming statement about this. But there's a bunch more. And whether or not folks have members of Congress who are in the problem solvers, they should write to their members and say, be clear publicly that this is a bad idea. Exactly. And I think that's a really important point. What else are you watching with anxiety coming into 24? So many things. Uh, <laughs> beyond this, there are two huge keys to 2024. What is the economy doing and how do people feel about it? And right now, those two things are really out of balance because if you look at the data, the economy is doing extraordinarily well. I mean, unemployment's at a 50-year low. Black unemployment is the lowest it has ever been recorded. The stock market's doing really well. Inflation is too high and that that is absolutely a thing that hurts. But it does seem that people are reacting more grumpily to the economy than might be warranted. And we're, that's going to matter. That will really drive decisions about who they vote for. So one thing is, how's the economy doing and people, how are people feeling about it? And then you know, the second thing is, if Trump is their nominee, can we turn this into a choice and not a referendum on Biden? And I think we can, as long as it's head to head. If it's a three-way race, it's much tougher. Yes, exactly. And that is really scary. What do you think is going to happen in Arizona with the Senate race? No labels comes into play here in an interesting way as well, because they have qualified for the ballot in Arizona and there are ballot lines available to folks running for other offices. So it is conceivable that cinema could run as a no labels candidate for Senate against Gallego and then whoever the Republicans nominate. Uh, it's pretty unlikely that she will even contest the Democratic nomination because it, there's almost no way she could win. And then, you know, three-way races are very, very difficult, uh, particularly if two of them are identified as basically Democrats. So it's a little nerve-wracking there. I don't see a path forward yet, but you never know. I mean, Lisa Murkowski won a writing campaign for Senate in Alaska, so anything's possible. Right, 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 right. I find it hard to bet against Ruben Gallego. He's a very dynamic guy, and he's got a lot of 
core supporters. And it will be very interesting to see how he does on this stage. I mean, he, he was a very effective candidate for House. So we are hoping for the best. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much. This was really interesting. I hope you'll come back. Anytime. Happy to be here. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Jung fast that Roger Stone, he got a little too close to the Trump world and he did what they all do, which is they say the thing they're not supposed to say. Why don't we listen to what he said? I want to talk to you about Donald Trump, someone who is a force of nature in himself, someone who marches to his own drummer, someone who is not handled, not managed, not controlled, a man who cannot be bossed and cannot be bought, which has made him one of the greatest presidents since Abraham Lincoln. I have a 40-year record of being able to uh, convince the big man to do what's in his best interest. He's not easy to deal with. It's complicated. He resents any implication that he is handled or managed or directed. You have to say, remember that night we were in Buffalo and you gave that speech and God, there had to be 10,000 people, the biggest crowd they'd ever seen. And you said X, Y, and Z, and the place went crazy. Remember that? I don't know where you came up with that line, but it's one of the best things you've ever... Yeah, like, I'm gonna use that one again. Doesn't fucking matter that he never said it. Doesn't matter. It's time consuming, but it works. I did it for 30 years. Roger Stone saying that no one can control Trump and then minutes later talking about how he controls Trump. That is our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. See new things. Try new things. Go back centuries while living in the moment. Forge new paths while discovering old ones. Pedal, paddle, and paint while trekking, tasting, and tailoring experiences that transform you into a better version of yourself. Immerse yourself in the world by activating your mind, your heart, and your body on a river cruise exclusively from Avalon Waterways. Save with limited time offers at avalonwaterways.com. Avalon is cruising. Elevated. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. 
Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.